Welcome to the Hope and Hard Pills podcast, where we are exploring the intersection between race and pop culture. And seeking practical insight for social progress. I'm one of your hosts, Andre Henry. And I'm the other host, Trishes. <laughs> hey, guys. And we are so excited to share another conversation with you today. But first, we're going to check in. Trish, what's going on? How you been doing? I have been well. I feel last week when we checked in, we were both in like a roller coaster kind of place. Mm-hmm. But I've been I've been pretty good this last week, just like been consistently focusing on the present. I um finally put screen time on my phone. So like I cannot look at my phone between like eight and eight thirty. Um mm. does the screen time like night- lock you out of it or something? You can choose which apps it locks you out of. So like I, well, you really just put which apps it doesn't lock you out of. So I have like Spotify, I can always open messages. I can always open um, weather. I can always open maps. I can always open, but otherwise like you go in and they're just like grayed out. It has like a little, um, what are those like sand things? <laughs> oh, okay. I know what you're talking <laughs> about. Things? We don't need that. We don't One need the vocabulary. <laughs> um, it has a little <laughs> symbol that's like you. You you're not supposed to do this right now, and you can click on it, and then it'll just be like <laughs> screen time. Oh, <laughs> and then and then it's like you can hit like ignore screen time, but uh-huh. that's like a whole other step that I just don't take unless like right. You just don't feel night, like doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So last night. I went to my friend, Sonia. She's an artist called Do Pauro. Um, and she studies a lot of indigenous medicine. I'm going to come back to that after I talk about the screen time. So when I got out, uh, out, she held like a little woman's circle. So when I got out, it was like 1030. And so I did hit ignore screen time and said like, ignore for one minute. So then mm-hmm. I could like just check like DMs. And then it was like yeah. my, my minute was up. Um, but otherwise, yeah. I'm not going to check. But yeah, back to um, Sonia's. She has been studying indigenous practices and medicine with um, indigenous people in Costa Rica. And she's been doing this for years. And she recently um, came back from a retreat. And she held this woman's circle that was really lovely where everyone sort of brought um, brought food and brought their different talents and um, offerings. So last night I did cupping for the first time. Have you ever done it? Oh, yeah. I, I've not done it. But now I remember seeing this on your Instagram. Yeah, it was cool it's like a weird sensation so i think this isn't like an ancient um asian i think pretty sure chinese i should have looked more into it but i was just like free treatment let's go um so they take these like glass jars and they put fire in it 
and then they put it on your back. And I think they can do it in other places, but they put it on your back and then the skin inside the jar, like it like rises up and it's supposed to be really good for like releasing tension and toxins and stuff like that. But my whole back is like covered with circular mm. bruises. Mm. Um, and then I woke up this morning so tired. There's no, like, they don't know the science of this, but I feel like I kind of trust it. Like ancient medicine stuff been around long enough that like people see value in it. Um, but I woke up this morning so exhausted. Like I had to take a nap at 11 a.m. And I guess mm. that's like one of the, um, one of the, the things that happens when you, when you do it, you get real <laughs> Side tired. Effects. Side effects. Mm. <laughs> or like, I don't know. I don't know what word I was looking for. So that's how I am. I'm covered in circular bruises. How are you? What a way to summarize that story. I'm doing pretty good, I guess. I don't know why I'm saying I'm doing pretty good. I think it's out of reflex. I, I'm okay. I I am genuinely on edge about the sheer number of mass shootings we've had in our country over the weekend. Like, yeah. I, but I am a bit encouraged that in, I believe it's Uvalde in Texas, they have passed a gun law. Huge. Oh, this I didn't is, know about this. they have passed a gun law. I, I wish that I would have, wish I would have looked this up before I even mentioned it. I didn't plan to talk about this. That's why I, I wasn't ready. Yeah. But they have, I believe, let me just look it up right now. We're sitting on the computer. Um, Uvalde gun law. I feel like that's going to be a promising Google search. Families demanding <laughs> gun control see a win in Texas because the state okay. bill passes. Let's see. What does it do? What does it do? They okay. It was is about raising the age for people to get okay. uh, to get a, a a firearm. Okay, I don't. I'm not a politico. So people listening to this, I'm not the guy that you listen to to explain everything about our political system and how it <laughs> works and all that kind of stuff. All I know. Is that in this country, we have talked as though getting a gun law anywhere <laughs> uh, is yeah. impossible. And the reason why this is so exciting for me is because I understand that we is that so much of what we can accomplish as far as social progress that is, de is dependent on both what we know and what we can imagine. Right. And this is why we always end up at the at the ground floor of all these conversations of change, because a lot of the people in power who are invested in the status quo want to, first off, fuck around with what we know by saying things like, well, how do we know that racism was a factor or, you know, things like that, you know, because yeah. justice is always based on what we know. So if if we know that there's a problem and we know that it's solvable and we know the science or we know whatever facts we need to know about anything, we do the same thing with climate change. You know, they want to argue about whether or not it exists. Right. And then what mm -hmm. we can imagine and the other things that we can we couldn't imagine this. So anyway, the fact that it happened anywhere, I hope, gives people in other parts of the country hope that it can happen where you are, too. We'll talk yeah, about this when we get to our in, happening in Texas is a big deal. 
because Huge. there have been there have been gun laws passed in like liberal blue states um but it being in texas that's insane i think this was this weekend this was the first shooting that i was like you know when i have kids i might have to leave like it was the yeah. first time that i really yeah. thought about that because i've always been like i can't leave like i i would feel like it was some sort of betrayal um and yeah i was like i i can't raise children in here in this yeah i mean so of course and when you think of okay there are three amigos of backward states in the in in, in our union texas <laughs> tennessee and florida we all know like this the, the other these are the three amigos of of backward states in this country and for it to pass in texas is huge. I want to talk more about, you know, not about this particular law, but this touches on kind of our main conversation today. So I'll save that for later. But I will say I have just I'm still feeling on edge, you know, about this because yeah. I'm just like, this is such a crazy problem that we have in this country that no other country in the world has. And you have one side saying there's nothing we can do about it, <laughs> except for like, you yeah. know, the dumb things like, Arm teachers. And then you have another side that is the social movements, which we need. But as a as a as a retired frontline activist, I understand how much whew, how much work around our own mental health, our own healing, uh, resistance skills that need to be built, you know, within the social movements that that are our only hope for progress, right? Uh, speaking of which, yeah. <laughs> I, need not to, I need to not say so much about this, but I have a problem where I speak my mind. And I know that there are many people planning actions for gun control in this country over the year. And my hypothesis, first off, is that I think now, first off, everyone listening to me, I know this is a conspiracy theory. So that I that I hold it's not a popular one it's just one that's in my head right but I have a suspicion that the powers that be are letting us blow off steam in the summer with protests just so we can get it out of our system and nothing's going to change wow. because they know they know that we don't really know why previous movements were successful and so with our lack of education mm. about how civil resistance works, they'll let us fill the streets every summer so we can let off the pressure valve and they can get back to business as usual. That's my suspicion, right? Wow. So I see yeah. people in Atlanta, in other cities <laughs> um, that are gearing up for mass protests this summer because summer's protest season now. And it breaks my heart to see um, the ways in which we are still not embracing the wisdom of previous movements and the tactics that actually prevent powerful people from doing, you know, their dirty business, <laughs> the dirty business. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I disagree with you. I mean, that sounds, that sounds accurate. Tandy way, tandy way, tandy way.
So today I wanted to talk about the writer's strike. You, I mean, I know that you know what's going on, Trish, but um, since I live in Hollywood and I live just a few blocks away from the Netflix building, just about any time I leave yeah. my house, I see the writers striking, actually. And uh, oh, it's wow, really that's encouraging cool. for me. It is cool. That is encouraging. Like, I, don't see, I don't see anyone that I recognize, but it's like, yeah, you know, fight the power. Yeah, I also like the solidarity with like the high paid writers and the low paid writers, honestly, Yeah, because mm-hmm. I'm like, you don't have to be out there, but you are. And I like it. Yeah. Well, I know that like the union doesn't play. They're like, if you cross the picket line, you're out. Yeah. Yeah. So but like even I'm seeing even seeing the high paid writers like actually out picketing is cool, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And. Yeah. I I think it's been I I didn't really think that much about it until you brought it up honestly and then I was like wow this mm. is really cool because it's like it's a real union that really works because everyone is part of this union like all of the mm. TV writers all of the film writers they are part of this union so they have so much power and it also makes, yes. makes me sad because it was like we could so many different so many different groups could be unionizing and we're not. And there's been like yeah. such a dramatic decline in unions in the past 50 years. So it's cool to see a union that is like still around and like works. This brings up such a huge point about something that we don't know about social progress, which is the, okay. Cause first off, the way that we learn about social progress, especially just, you know, through cultural osmosis, where we're just absorbing it through, you know, the atmosphere, is that it's always it always becomes mystified after it's happened, right? After the struggles right. that won us an eight-hour work week, uh, I mean, eight-hour work day, 40-hour work week, that one sick paid leave and all that kind of thing. The, the, the history of that story just disappears into the ether and is repackaged as just a part of America's exceptional democracy, right? And so we forget that unions had to fight for, you know, us to have something like a 40-hour work week because before then it was just all the time. You know, like, remember everyone, (laughs) America was built on slavery. So right. the, the work, the work week and the work, the work age was much lower and the work week was much longer. But union organizing, union resistance got us to where we are today. And so we still need those, like you were saying. Yeah. And I think a lot of it, from my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of how um, people were able to dismantle unions was like using race as a way to as it's always used to separate people and it's just I think that's what I I think I'm thinking about um the sum of us by Heather McGee and she talks about all these ways that um that white Americans hurt themselves through racism because it absolutely and and unions was one of the things she, she she spoke about in it Absolutely. They were able to use racist discourses to get white workers to, I mean, to basically break up the picket line, right? To basically say, uh, you don't want these Negroes to have the same right as you, do you? (laughs) You know, and that was effective, (laughs) you know, 
the other right. thing that the other thing that I think of when I'm passing by these folks is there well there 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 are a couple of things. One is one is what what some people call people power. Some people call it the law of consent. Some people call it the you know they they have all kinds of names for it. But it's the idea. This is why I go around the country playing Simon Says with people whenever I can. And I'm going to say it on my podcast because so many people tell me they're going to steal this example. And I'm like, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just credit me? (laughs) So anyway, what I have people do is I have the crowd. I say, okay, I'm going to teach you a lesson about power. You, You define power however you want. You know, it's Dr. King said it's the power to achieve purpose. Others say it's, it's the ability to get something done to accomplish a goal, whatever. So we're going to play Simon Says to, so we can understand how power works in society. And so I tell everyone, you know, clap. Simon Says clap three times. Everybody does it. Simon Says, say your first name. Everybody does it. And then I say, okay, Simon Says, stand up and pull your pants down. Right. And no one does it. Some, a couple times someone has pretended like they're going to, but nobody has actually done it, which I need to be careful that I make that, uh, that I screen audiences because one day <laughs> someone's going to do it. And then I'm going to have to explain you know, sociologically, you know, through through some social movement theory about that. But anyway, no one does it. And then afterward, I ask them, okay, so who has the power in the game? And most people get it. Every once in a while, someone, y'all hear someone say, Simon does. And I'm like, really? But Simon told everyone, put their pants, pull their pants down and nobody yeah. did it, right? Yeah. And the reason why the game works is because the people playing the game consent to Simon's rule, right? Yeah. They have decided collectively that we will do what Simon says. And that's why the game works. But as soon as not even the majority, just if there are 10 people playing, you know, three people is enough to say, well, we're not going to do that. And then other people start going, oh, well, they're not doing it. So maybe I shouldn't do it. Right. So the game breaks down when people stop playing. This is a lesson about power that I think is taught in a good civics class. But we know the condition of 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 our educational system in this country. And so we don't tend to understand. It's not our common sense that we that when we say we do not consent to these conditions and we organize that dis that lack of consent, that discontent together. That's how we create change. That's why things like the Montgomery bus boycott worked anyway. So I'm looking at these writers who have said we do not consent to these conditions if the conditions are going to stay this way we are not going to work under them together right and that's why this works oftentimes this is way more powerful as well in this and this this is a perfect example it's like it's way more powerful in this situation because they know that that particular system depends on their collective consent, on their collective labor. So when they withdraw that labor together, they know that that actually matters to the system. Everyone listening to this podcast right now, especially if you're in the United States at this time in history, I, I hope I didn't just make this podcast dated by saying that. But this is how we need to think about these gun laws. Anything we want to change, right? All of us have a role to play in social change and all of us can play a part regardless of our position. But when the people who are directly impacted by some of these things and the people for whom that system directly depends on for their labor 
especially withdraw their consent, that system can't work anymore. So like I posted this yesterday because like I mentioned earlier, I'm rambling. Um, the, yeah. you know, the, um, you know, that there are protests being planned this summer and protest is great, but it's only one classification of social action. It's an, it's a broad yeah. category and it's an expressive form of politics, but it doesn't actually jam the gears of the machine. The NRA does not care if millions of people go out in the streets and say, we don't like this in whatever particular social justice chant you choose. They don't care. And furthermore, they know. You have to find some way to make the status quo more expensive for them or you have to find a way to remove their political resources. And that's what we're seeing when you have an exploitative system like the entertainment business that depends on exploited workers like the writers and the exploited workers say, yeah, no, we're not doing this. That's how you strong, that's how you strong arm the, the powers that be into negotiating. Yeah. If you want to negotiate. Yeah. Steps off soapbox. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the whole, the whole speech, Andre. <laughs> Um, I think I often wonder why it seems like as a society groups of people do not have the type of resolve that it seems that we used to have and I don't know if that is an illusion if that's something I've made up or it's a combination of like a couple things I think um, I think the powers that be have gotten better at being able to distract us mm -hmm. from our own lives. I think maybe that is something that has changed. And I do think the... I was going to say, like, the divisiveness is a thing, but no, I don't believe that because, you know, like, um, that that 3.5% of the population stat, is that what mm -hmm. it is? 3.5% of the population? Yeah, 3.5% of the population. That it, yeah. we only need, yeah, that that's all you need for, for change to occur. So I do wonder, do we lack resolve as a, as a society? Or is that mm -hmm. like also a part of a narrative that I'm buying into, you know? Could you say, uh, there was something I wanted to ask you to say more about the lack of resolve. What, is, what do you mean by that? It seems like people are not like willing to put their lives on hold. Like this seems yeah. like a an anomaly. And it just mm -hmm. doesn't seem like people have like that sort of like fervor to like let's do this. Like let's stick it to the man. People don't want to yeah. do it. And but that could be partially because they're projecting they're projecting onto other people what's wrong with their lives instead of like looking at the in the correct direction and that might be There's, cultural stuff i have some i have some hypotheses about this i don't know exactly but i do think okay well first off for people to be able to pull off something like a strike or a boycott which as i'm talking about it i just want to reiterate 
that a part of, if I could summarize part of what I'm saying before, and I think this also is a part of answer to your question, is that a lot of us don't understand how to actually escalate resistance, right? I think people mm -hmm. have two ideas. It's like, we're going to quote unquote peaceful protest or we're going to burn things. And this is a part of us just not understanding that there is a vast array of tactics out there that have already been tried. And you all, wonderful people listening and your, your friends who have no idea that this podcast exists, and maybe you'll share it with them after this one, um, <laughs> that we have the collective imagination of millions of people that can innovate new tactics to use, right? And so when I talk about escalating, it's like, yes, there is protest, but then there is also civil disobedience, which is like the folks in New York City right now standing on the subway tracks in protest of the murder of Jordan Neely and the, the refusal of the powers that be to do anything about it. I'm getting real passionate today. <sighs> I like it. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not just protest. That's civil disobedience, right? But we have, a, we have a truncated language for resistance, so we call it all protest. But that's civil disobedience, and it's important for us to understand it as civil disobedience because under that category is a vast array of tactics as well that we can tap into. Not only is that, that example civil disobedience, it's also direct intervention, which is a whole other category as well. They're combining all three major categories of resistance, uh, as explained by Gene Sharp, into one action, right? But that, that lack of knowledge that we have is what I'm saying is that we don't have the education about resistance, nor the resistance skills <laughs> to, to do the types of things that some of our predecessors did. Like people think that Dr. King just spontaneously walked to Alabama by himself or he was carried by, you know, some mystical social justice mm -hmm. creature and then, you know, gathered all the white people of Birmingham together in, in a meeting with, um, with, uh, with the civil rights leaders and preached the I Have a Dream speech and ascended into heaven when Truly, like what these people did was four months before they ever set foot in Birmingham, they met in Savannah, Georgia, and they talked about what they wanted to accomplish in Birmingham. Then they went to Birmingham and Pastor Wyatt Walker literally surveyed the entire city. How long does it take to get from the 16th Street Baptist Church to the business district? How far is that from Kelly Ingram Park? How long will it take for them to cart people to the jail? You know, all that kind of stuff. They which 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 businesses should we target and why they did all of this planning <laughs> and then they trained they trained 250 activists regular people 250 people in Birmingham in order to participate in this campaign and these are things that people don't know as someone who has been on the front lines I know how often I've tried to talk to people about these principles that have worked all over the world to liberate other people and the thing that they do these people that other look others look to as leaders they say get the fuck out of here with all of that thinking and talking and planning and so like we literally are not give, we literally are not given the education nor equipped with the tools. And then when these things happen, we feel powerless. And this is extremely this is extremely discouraging because there's something that one scholar, Doug McAdam, talks about. It's called cognitive liberation. And this is something that is 
I've never talked this much on my podcast. Invaluable <laughs> to us. <laughs> Literally, I, I have other people on and I let them talk, you know. <laughs> um, but this is invaluable because there are two parts to this, to cognitive liberation. One is that the, pe- the oppressed people have to first off understand their situation as unjust. And we would think that that would be obvious to people who are being oppressed, but it's not. All of us are living under capitalist exploitation. And most of us are living with some kind of myth that says this system actually works for us. And all we have to do is work harder. And eventually it'll work for us because look, it worked for Elon Musk. It worked for Bill Gates. It worked for whatever the other, Bezos, Bezos. My father says Bezos, cute Jamaican man. (laughs) (laughs) Bezos, for Jeff Bezos, you know. All we have to do is work hard and we can be billionaires like them, completely erasing, you know, the the many, you know, first up, the, the emerald mine that made Elon Musk family great, right? So we don't all understand that our system, that our situation is unjust. That's number one. But the second part is that we have to believe that the situation is changeable through collective action. And our system works very well to erase struggles that have led to different, you know, different uh milestones of social progress like we talked about before and also to to um execute these spectacular displays of might that discourage us from resisting finally (laughs) what to the question of like you know to be able to pull off a strike to be able to pull which is one of the most powerful things we can do by the way I want to keep harping on this because every time something happens, everyone goes straight to we need to fill the streets and protest with signs and stuff. And that's fine. Do that. But again, they don't care. They do not care. But they do care about not having workers to exploit. And they do care about profits going down, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, in order to pull that off, the people who are striking, the people who are boycotting have to be supported, which is why unions are so helpful, right? And this is also why with the Montgomery bus boycott, for instance, they, (laughs) I'm getting into all the points. First off, they boycotted the buses for 13 months, you know? And they needed those buses to get to work. They needed those buses. That's what I'm saying. But they were able to do that. It feel like people have that sort of resolve. Like it doesn't but it's not feel just like the resolve. people care enough to do anything. It's not, but it's not just the resolve and the caring. It's that in order for them to do it, it had to be sustainable, right? And the way that it was sustainable for them was the community got together and organized a carpool. <laughs> they organized a system to replace people's shoes when they wore out. There were people being driven to work in hearses from the funeral home because they were because because people in the community were pooling their resources together to make the boycott possible. Right. And so it's not resolve alone. Right. Like in 2020, I saw a lot of people on the street, passionate people, people of goodwill who were willing to do the work and they got burned out. Because they thought if we just get mad enough, (laughs) 
the anger itself yeah. will fuel us until the M&Ms fall from the sky and there's no more racism. But that's not how it works. These yeah. things are made sustainable by having people giving them clear roles to play and setting up structures so that they can continue to do the work, recruit more people, give people that are getting tired and burnt out their chance to rest, keep training up new activists and you keep on feeding the resistance machine, just like the oppression machine keeps on sustaining itself. And without seeing right. victories, without having these structures, people burn out, they lose hope. You know, those, those are some yeah. of my, <laughs> some of my observations. Yeah, no, totally. I think the other thing I was gonna, I was gonna jump to is that idea of community. Like we have all become more like isolated individually there's like less yeah. community gathering there's less places where mm. people create community and have a sense of unity and community and yeah. and i think that is like one of the the major problems with everything and i think like because i was think about i think think about tiktok a lot where I do see a lot of cultural change in terms of the education part, which I think yeah. is cool. I think these yeah. platforms are actually like educating people in a way that our systems clearly do not. But then on the flip side of the social media stuff is that, you know, we are living in these realms where we're not like where we're on our phones and we're not connecting to our, our actual physical communities. And I, well, I think the lack of community is, is the core of a lot of our, our cultural problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I do think we would be able to um, affect a lot more change if we had like hubs for community. And I think a big thing is like mm -hmm. a lot of people a lot more people were religious, you know, even 20 yeah. years ago, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that was a big place that people found community was within religious institutions. Absolutely. So I think we need to, to be able to find, like build, build places that can have that community without, you know, mm -hmm. the, the bad the bad stuff in religion <laughs> well i mean some of the bad stuff in religion is just the bad stuff with people coming together right so it's like i mean mm. i don't need to minimize the the violence of so many of so much religious violence in history but i mean i think to your point like some of us not just some of us no we have to we have to learn to live together collectively communally mm -hmm. right yeah. i was reading on tyranny i can't remember the i can't remember the author's name but it's called on tyranny little book about how to fight authoritarianism or things to remember during the rise of authoritarianism and the thing that stood out to me the most was the little chapter called say hi to your neighbors <laughs> and i thought I never thought that I would be that that would be a lesson for effective anti-fascist resistance. But reading the chapter, it did make it did make a lot of sense, because if you know your neighbors and you're invested in your neighbors lives to some degree, like. I mean, you're, you're less likely to call the Gestapo on them, you know. You're more likely to stand up, yeah, for, also, stand up for that neighbor, then neighborhood. 
Yeah. Just like go take a walk because I realized that Mm -hmm. I would have like no without my dog and the fact that I take him outside for like two hours a day, basically. I wouldn't know anyone around here. There is nothing that would like propel me to like go meet all of these people that I see really often. I think a big thing is like our communities used to be a lot more walkable. You used to just like physically Mm. see people more. Yeah. Um, but I think the other thing is that I realized I was at the I was at my park the other day where I take curry. Not a dog park, it's just a park that dogs run around at. Mm -hmm. And I don't like to talk to people. I don't. I bring my book. I read it. Say hi. Yeah. Say hi. Mm -hmm. And I had this realization that I was like, you don't need to, you don't even need to like, like your community. You don't need to feel some sort of like close bond to feel a sense of community and be like, yeah. oh, like that guy's not, that guy hasn't been here for like a couple of weeks. Like, I hope he's okay. Yeah. Or like to notice things about people because I don't talk to a lot of people, but everyone knows me and everyone knows my dog. Yeah. And I know everyone and I know everyone's dog. And that is more valuable than I think people realize is just the seeing the same people all the time. You don't have to be best friends. You don't have to go out and get drinks. You don't have to tell them about your whole life, but they know that you are part of that community. They know that they should be, if you're not there, something's weird. And I think like everyone, every, when I go on a, a trip and I have a friend watching curry everyone will be like Mm -hmm. oh your friend was here with curry and she's had such a hard time because curry is so (laughs) stubborn but like then they'll all tell me stories about and it's like it's it's a different kind of relationship than a friendship than yes even like an acquaintance right like a relationship with community is its own unique thing and I yeah. feel that we kind of lose sight of that. You know, this is such a this is such a huge lesson. Okay, so before I knew anything about the power of consent, right? The theory of consent. I remember this was maybe 2014, 2015, had to be 2014. Sitting outside, I was living in New York City at the time, sitting, we were eating lunch after church, a few of us. And <laughs> I found myself explaining the theory of consent before I knew it because I was saying like, Hey, like if we saw, I wish that we lived in a world where like, if we saw someone like being attacked, like over there, like everyone sitting out here would be like, Hey, Hey, no, that's not going down. Like, you know, that we would intervene. Right. That's exactly what we're talking about. On the other side of that, nearly 10 years later, I now I know that like not only is that the essence of many uh, civil resistance struggles, it's the it's the essence of anti-fascist movements. You know, there is something about like historically there's there has been this thing when you when you take what you just said, like I'm a part of this community seriously and it doesn't have to be necessarily formal. But what I, I've been I've, you know, I've read some some history on anti-fascism, like there's just been this attitude in communities where they say, no, you're not marching here. You know, 
Now, they were not trained for nonviolence, so they just beat the shit out of Nazis that tried to march through their neighborhood. But you know what? Even Gandhi said, if the choice is between nonviolence and inaction, violence is the better choice. So, you know, they did what they knew to do. But still, that attitude of not in my neighborhood, right, is what discouraged fascists from organizing. Because at a certain point, the Nazis, you know, the Nazis or the fascists in these different communities just said, listen, it's just not worth going out there. It's not worth going out there and being shunned and beat up or whatever. Now, as I say that as a proponent of nonviolence, you don't have to hit the fascists. <laughs> you know, like uh, the Rosenstrasse protest uh, is very important for you to know about as well, where these women saved their their Jewish husbands from being taken to the concentration camps simply by showing up at, at a detention center in uh, Berlin in 1945 and demanding their husbands back. The Nazis turned their guns on these women and said, if you don't go home right now, we're going to shoot you all. And these women said, the, the women didn't just cry out louder. They started just shouting murderers at the Nazis and they got their husbands back. So nonviolence works too, is my wow. point. But the point where I was, <laughs> the point where I was is, yeah, there, there is something about saying, no, not in this community, not in this neighborhood together, you know, that is powerful. Yeah. And we have to recover that. And and it has to feel like the responsibility of everyone, which is like going back to what I was saying about that. I, I love that even the writers who were well off were out there picketing because yeah. they still feel that collective responsibility. And what I think is interesting is that like people, people like to look at these writers and be like, oh, Hollywood writers, like kind of write it off. It's like these people are disconnected mm -hmm. from like real like working class people. But that's like, in fact, exactly who they are. And mm -hmm. most of these people are just working class people. And it's like, that's all also part of that narrative that is like meant to, to stop us from yeah. unity is that idea that like, Absolutely. oh, they're actually like those like liberal, like Hollywood writers, mm -hmm. like that are like, when it's, it's like, we're, we're actually on the same side, like. All like there's a very small group of people who are actually benefiting from a very large group of us. And I think Absolutely. it's like also pushing up against pushing against that narrative. The other thing I wanted to touch on briefly is because we were talking about AI last week. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the um one of the demands is more of mm -hmm. uh more control of, of the direction of AI in mm -hmm. writing um mm -hmm. and the and ai not affecting writers pay because they are mm -hmm. looking forward and seeing like how ai is going to be taking jobs away from them and that's something mm -hmm. that everybody needs to do and it might not be ai is going to take away your job and you want to stop it but it is saying hey ai is going to take away these jobs and we need to like collectively say how are people going to be taken care of? And it's something we need to think about now. Like we need to be fighting for things like universal basic income because yes. these, this, this technological advances, like they're happening and they're happening really quickly. Mm -hmm. So I think they're um, sort of forward thinking about that is also something for us to, to learn from and observe. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, what I hear, what I think of when I hear you say that is just how individualistic our culture is. And even yeah. in the way that we think about change, we hear about 
the power of one, right? You know, and all that other kind of stuff. And I'm like, yes, you as an individual can make a difference mm. in the world. But we, <laughs> you know, what we can do is something that this system does not want for us to know, doesn't want for it to be our yeah. common sense, right? And I love like how you're pointing out this disconnect that people have. Like people, I think genuinely don't see Hollywood writers as, you know, yeah, we are in the same boat. And I think part of that is that we just assume that all that money passing through Hollywood is in the hands of these writers as well. And what these writers are trying to help right. us understand is, listen, they're, they're, they're being made into gig workers, you know, and there are times mm -hmm. when they can't pay their bills. And the thing is, being a TV writer is not like, you know, going, being a, being a reception at an office, not in, not just in the sense that when they have work, they get more pay than you, but that they may not work for years after a contract is up, you know? So yeah. yes, they get paid a lot of money, but they have to stretch that money out <laughs> over so much time and be so wise with the money that they have. And not all of them are getting millions of dollars for writing episodes. Now with them, you know, messing yeah. around with the residuals that they should be getting from streaming, you know, yeah, of guess these people are. And so this is that divide and conquer strategy, I think, of empire where there are so many discourses in our culture that tell us, I don't need to worry about what that person's or those people are going through because they're not a part of my community. You know, that's what racism, yeah. sexism, classism, all that stuff is. That's what happened to Jordan Neely on the on the to the plane, the train in New York, right? Like yeah. these people see a poor. Uh, I I want to I almost said mentally ill, and I guess that you can say that, but it's like it's more than that because that puts what's happening that puts his condition on him, and I don't want to put the condition on him. I, it's he's not just he's not mentally ill by some mysterious circumstance. Not having a house is stressful. Being hungry on the mm -hmm. street is stressful and poverty is a policy yeah. choice, you know, like, mm -hmm. yeah. so anyway, but the people on the train identified with the man choking him yeah. more than they did with Jordan Neely. With him. Right? Yeah. And it's all these discourses that keep us from understanding that we are united in this collective frustration yeah. of living under the violent regime of racial capitalism. It's time for the coach quiz. Wait, what time is it? It's time for the coach quiz. Oh, that thing. It's time for the coach quiz. You guys do that like it's time every week, coach right? Quiz. All right. This is the culture quiz coronation edition. Now, <laughs> we could talk about all the stolen jewels. That the royal family still has. <laughs> we can talk about all the stolen jewels that are worn in the coronation, but that sounds sad. So, <laughs> so that's all I'm going to say about that. Andre, that's that. Yes. No one knows the exact price of the king's three day coronation. However, oh, it's Lord. estimated that it cost upward of $100 million. Was the coronation paid for by taxpayers or by the royal family? 
Taxpayers. It sure was. Why don't I give you an easy one? Because you only got one out of three last week. Wow. I'm yeah. gonna have these. I'm gonna so have this actually, fake audience cheer for me anyway. <laughs> you can't hear it, but they're clapping for me. So I didn't realize the royal weddings are paid for by the family. So I'm like, I'm I'm not into any of it because I don't think the British Empire is great. Um, <laughs> but at least that's like paid for by the royal family and actually like makes mm-hmm. a bunch of money for the uk or something but this coronation mm-hmm. is paid for by, by taxpayers and it is just ridiculous like it is silly it's not even like if you're gonna spend a hundred million dollars like it should be cool you know it should be, it should be like, cool. did you see the pictures <laughs> did you see the pictures of like the king and the queen and he's like it like looks like they're dressed in like party city like outfit no it's just Come on, guys. They, they, I saw a tweet that was like, yeah, these pictures should have stayed in black and white because I didn't realize like how (laughs) just like ugly all this stuff is. Like the white, like overcoat, like fur coat thing and like this purple, like it's, it was, it's just bad and like ill fitting. I don't know. If you're going to spend that much, it should be really cool. I I just, I think I just figured something out. Okay. Oh my gosh. Tell me if you can hear this. I can hear it. Oh wow. Uh, I figured out a thing. I did. I can I think I can also turn that down. Amazing. Yeah. You I should. figured out a thing. This is now I can now I can insert sound effects into our show. I can't wait. So you have one. Maybe you're gonna get. Maybe you're gonna get three out of three today. Maybe today's your day. We'll see. Let's not get our hopes too high. <sighs> Whose birthday coincidentally fell on Coronation Day? Is this oh, an open answer, that. short answer question? <laughs> this is an open answer question. I thought you would know. Oh my gosh! All right, let's see. There was no, I have no well, idea. who was notably who was notably not at the coronation? You know? You was know Meghan I mean? Markle not there? She wasn't there. Okay. She I I thought that there. someone said she was there in disguise, and I'm like, that sounds oh, way there less is a plausible. Theory. There is a theory <laughs> about that. Um so that was a hint for you. Was it Meghan Markle's birthday? <laughs> No, you don't get that one. It was Archie's birthday. Who is Archie? So they, Archie's their son. (laughs) (laughs) They chose to put Coronation Day on the birthday of Meghan and Harry's son. Oh my God. I think they did it on purpose. (laughs) Sounds like it. This this is letting y'all know I'm not a fan of the royals, not like my parents were. My at least my mom. My mom, I shouldn't say parents. My dad is an anti-imperialist activist, but my mom loved her <laughs> some. Did, do your parents like the royals? No, no, not fans. Okay. I mean, I don't. Th- I think my mom's neutral, and my dad is actively like, give the jewels back to India. Um, <laughs> like any time the royal family is brought up, he has to mention the crown jewels. 
Oh because my, my dad's God. funny. My dad's my dad's like racially Indian, but he's not like he's not culturally Indian. He's Trinidadian, uh, but he like uh, likes to pretend he's like very Indian, even though it's like you know you, you don't know anything. <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> he likes yeah. to he likes to pretend. Um, That's funny. What year was Queen Elizabeth II coronated? Oh my God! So I don't know. <laughs> oh, this is multiple choice. This is multiple choice. <laughs> A, nineteen fifty three. B, nineteen sixty five. C, nineteen forty nine. Or D, nineteen seventy. I'm gonna go with nineteen forty nine on this one. Very close. Very close. 1953. Yeah, what? 70 years ago. She was the queen for 70 years. Wow. That was a long wow. time. Wow. That is a very long time. Um, yeah, and everyone liked her, which I'm like, oh, why? <laughs> Like she upheld like so many awful things, but people are like, hmm, I like her. She was I, she was nice. I have no idea how Britain pulled it off. Like <laughs> they had the largest, most you know, largest empire in recent memory that yeah. did so much violence all over the world. And somehow people forgot about that. And not only that, are convinced that they didn't like perfect racism and make it a global thing. Like when you talk about Brit racism in England, people are like, what? what are you talking about? Americans made that. Right. Anyway, oh I'm Andre Henry and I'm famous for ruining the culture quiz, which is supposed to be a fun game. <laughs> <sighs> no, I also, I'm Trisha's. I also ruin the culture quiz sometimes by bringing up. <laughs> Andre, it's been a pleasure. It it's always a pleasure, actually, and it's always also it's also always a it's always a pleasure to hang out with you all as well. Thank you for listening to the Hope and Heart Pills podcast, Tandy Way. Okay, everyone, y'all can't see Tandy Way, but this is my big uh, bird of paradise. Okay, for those who are watching on on patrons who are watching, you can because I'm going to turn the camera. If you guys aren't a patron, you're really missing out now. Just letting you know. This is Tandy Way. This is one of my plant babies. She is a, she's taller than me now. Wow. She's grown. Yeah, she's grown. So like I moved my hand and I hit her and sometimes I I joke with Tandy Way. I'm like, Tandy Way? Gosh. All in my space. Anyway, it's a pleasure hanging out with you all too, our listeners, and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you know, we'll we'll talk to you next week, you know? Uh, we're we gonna wait. send you over to Ross. Huh? Bye. <laughs> Bye. Oh, I just said later. we can't wait. We can't wait to see you. It's very true. All right, y'all. See you later. Thanks for choosing to listen today. You can catch up with our hosts online. Trish's is at Trish's Music. That's spelled T-R-I-S-H-E-S Music on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Andre is at the Andre Henry on Instagram and TikTok, and at Andre Henry on Twitter. 
Catch the songs you heard today and more of their music on Spotify. If you'd like to support what we're doing here and see the video of Andre and Trisha's conversation, you can join the Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Andre Henry. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.